0: Well hello and welcome to another episode of uh, GUCAST. Uh, My name is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter MacCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Dr Renu Eepin, also a urologist here at Peter Mac. Hello Renu.
1: Hello Declan, great to be here for episode two and uh, very excited for our guest today
0: episode two. Yes, we have an exciting international guest and we also have an exciting uh, local guest, I'm delighted to say, Um, Dr. Daniel Moon, another one of our urology colleagues here at Peter Mac is joining us uh, as a guest.
2: Uh, Hello, Dan. Thanks, Dick. Thanks for including me. Are you an enthusiastic podcast listener by any chance? A long time listener, first time caller. Very
0: good. Excellent. (laughs) So today um, we're starting, I hope it's quite a short series of podcasts focusing on the management of uh, GU cancers uh, in the face of this uh, unprecedented COVID crisis, which is uh, gripping the entire world, uh, really. Um, As we speak, it's the 2nd of April, 2020, and the numbers of infected cases here in Australia are rising, but nowhere near the numbers uh, that we're seeing in other countries, um, particularly the disastrous situations, uh, honestly, that we see uh, in Italy and Spain, uh, coming out on, on the media all the time, um, but we're in full preparation mode here in Australia with the with the drastic um, social distancing measures that we've all got used to, and and also significant reductions in, in clinical activity in anticipation of, of numbers rising uh, over the next, I think, six weeks or so. They're predicting here in Australia, so I think it, it's fair to say we're all um, a bit nervous now. One of the big concerns, of course, for clinicians um, and patients, especially those of us working full-time in in cancer, uh, is the impact of all this disruption to clinical services on cancer management. Uh, And today, GUcast is focusing on the management of early uh, prostate cancer, and we're going to go through other Mm Uh, GU cancers uh, in the coming few episodes as well to try and help us here in Australia uh, understand how we should be preparing and preparing our patients uh, and to get some perspectives from from those of uh, those of our colleagues overseas who've already been in this COVID thing hopefully some of them coming through the the end of this COVID uh, thing to see how they have coped uh, with their um, cancer patients. So uh, I'm really delighted to welcome um, our good friend, uh, Professor Alberto Briganti, uh, from San Rafael University Hospital in Milan uh, to discuss all of this uh, with us here today. Uh, Hello Alberto, can you hear us?
3: Yes, hello Declan, very well. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me and the connection seems to be very good indeed.
0: Indeed. Well, it's nice to join you uh, by, by Zoom we're using. Gosh, we're all getting so very used to these technologies that uh, allow us to, to stay in touch. Uh, and it's very nice to see you there. And, and first of all, before we uh, pick your brains uh, uh, on how you're managing with uh, your prostate cancer patients in Milan, and we, we, of course, know Milan is at the center uh, of all this. Uh, can we ask you, first of all, how you are yourself, Alberto? What, what's it been like in Milan? And, and I hope you and your family are all safe.
3: Uh, yes, thank you, Declan. yes, uh, we, are, we are safe at the moment, we are fine, and uh, the situation in Milan, as you said, is quite uh, heavy, and uh, we still have uh, uh, a, a significant amount of people dying every day for COVID-related diseases, even though it seems that we have reached the peak, and so the number of affected people is, is not uh, uh, like exponentially growing, uh, luckily, So it seems that there are some positive signs of at least stabilisation of the number of people who get infected and who require admission to emergency departments.
0: Well, it's nice to hear those optimistic uh, um, uh, reports, and indeed that's what we see here. Of course, we're seeing the coverage from Italy uh, all the time, and we're all trying to understand these peaks and these numbers and what it might mean for us uh, here in Australia. So our, our thoughts are very much with you and many of our other uh, Italian friends uh, in this uh, time. Um, so Renu, um, yeah. you're going to uh, pick Alberto's brains and uh, ask him a few questions about how, how he and his group in San Rafael, this very famous gigantic prostate cancer yeah. hospital in Milan, have been coping with it. Uh, over to you.
1: Hi, Alberto. Hi, um, Like Declan said, in Australia we've been sort of watching and listening with a lot of shock and sadness uh, at the situation that's been going on in Italy. Um, And I think we have a lot to learn from how you've managed your prostate cancer cases. Um, Here in Australia, our local guidelines have, have essentially told us no further elective surgery and we're really restricted to the most urgent uh, cancers, um, especially with, when it comes to high-risk prostate cancer. So just to start off, are, are you still seeing patients with raised PSA? Are you still doing MRIs, prostate biopsies? Tell us a little bit about your experience in that, in that sort of arena.
3: Yeah. Uh, so first of all, of all, thank you again. And I would just like to premise that um, you know, we actually uh, shut down completely any form of, uh, of management of benign disease. Yeah. So what we are now doing is just focusing on cancer and urgent cases. Yeah. Uh, so uh, pretty much what happened over the last weeks is that um, uh, the, the, our hospital, based on government indications, decided to actually close all um, possible consultations for patients related to benign disease, as I said, but honestly also for cancer cases, cancer cases recently. Uh, that means that uh, 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 the offices are closed, but uh, we cannot deny our patients to have consultations. So in case of urgent cases, we're still allowed to see these patients and to manage these patients, knowing that it's possible that has happened recently. We are not going to operate on these patients, but we might operate these patients elsewhere. And I explain you better. Uh, since our operating theaters has been shut down almost completely, we do only have one OR per week. Our region, which is Lombardy regions, has decided to like build a hub uh, for oncological cases, so we are actually now shifting our patients to other oncological places, which are COVID-free.
1: Right.
3: That means that we are going to operate these patients in other hospitals, Based on the availability of these hospitals, provided there is no COVID, I mean there is COVID everywhere, but at least it's not hard for COVID. Yeah. And so we are now, from as of next week, we we will likely operate in other places as well.
1: And obviously, so this
3: kind of situation which is moving uh, fast.
1: Yeah, and, and even with those patients that you're transferring to other regions, you you're having to do a lot of prioritization.
3: Yeah, yeah. So the prioritization we are doing is basically. Based on, uh, of course, stage or disease type, stage and 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 also patient requests. Being honest, because uh, one one other thing that we are facing is that okay, we see many cancer patients, patients, but first many of these patients do not want to come to our hospital because of like fear of being infected. Of course. So this is another thing. So the patient point of view is also. Making the things more complicated because many of these patients then decide not to be ob- operated or even to not show up yeah. during during uh, during consultations. Yeah. So regarding prostate cancer We do have actually our prioritization which is based of course only on uh, on high-risk patients and so we are pretty much um, now focusing on these patients knowing that uh, some of these patients may be likely safely shifted to other forms of treatment Uh, But still, uh, what we are doing is is just, um, uh, when it comes to surgery, just to pick up those patients with high-risk disease. And then we counsel them again about the possibility to have either surgery or another form of treatment. Now, the different and the difficult thing is that you have scheduled that patient for the OR like maybe two months ago. Three months ago, before the crisis was, was, was evident, and that guy was not convinced but was sure that surgery was somewhat better than other forms of therapy. Now, you have to cancel him again, that yeah. the radiation therapy plus almost is equally effective as surgery. Yeah. So, patients get a little bit confused, you know. And, and so, in this whole COVID story, what we should remember is really the patient body because many patients are really reluctant in seeing going to the hospitals now and uh, to our hospital Mm -hmm. as well since it's known in the country that our hospital is a hub for covid and we do now have uh, 400 patients with covid
2: Uh disease alberto daniel daniel moon here again thank you so much again for your time and as renu has already passed on wishing you and your family and all your other loved ones all the best over there it sounds horrific um And we're all watching and trying to learn the lessons from what we're seeing. Um, Two questions along the lines of what you were talking about. Are there those patients who you offer um, androgen deprivation therapy to um, essentially hopefully put their cancer um, on pause so that they can then be done safely in a few months' time? And secondly... Although you say we can offer them other treatments, is not seven-week course, say, a radiation therapy going back and forward every day, encouraging more patient movement than a single trip to a hospital and having your tumour removed through surgery?
3: Yeah, I have points. So with regards to the first question, we don't, we, don't, we don't give ADT prior to surgery, not even in the situation of, of, of a longer waiting list. So honestly, I don't counsel my patients to be on hormones while waiting for better times. So, uh, increase operating uh, uh, resources and, and uh, availabilities. And second question, yes. So now, w- w- what we are doing, honestly, also what our radiation therapists are doing, and I think this is something like shared by many other radiation therapists, is is to like prefer forms of of of, of hyperfractionation. So. Basically, I think that many uh, or many of these patients will, will receive uh, 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 some forms of, uh, of uh, hyperfractionation, knowing that, of course, the literature and the supporting evidence for that in a high-risk se- setting is, is questionable. Uh, but still, um, uh, some of these patients are, are then shifted to, to uh, radiation therapy plus hormones. But again, honestly, I will say that when we did consultation for these patients, and I tell you in a minute how it worked at our place, many of these patients anyway decided to stay on the decision to be operated. Maybe not now, maybe not next month, maybe in three months, that's okay. And for them, it was considered feasible and acceptable without any fear of having like disease going on. Uh, uh, regardless of the use of hormones, so if I tell you the truth, the number of patients that decide to be shifted to radiation therapy were very few. Mm-hmm.
2: And are you seeing a trend away from laparoscopy and robotic surgery, as has been suggested um, in I think the US and also the UK, with the proposed higher risk of aerosol spread in that form of um, treatment?
3: No, we don't. We, we don't have that uh, that concern. At least we have not embraced. Those concerns. So I know there is also like a formal document given by the ERUS, which is the robotic section of the AAU. And the document has been, I think, just released where there is some concerns, as you said, about possible increased risk of infection. Uh, but uh, this is something that we have not embraced based on the lack of solid evidence. So we say we're still doing robotic cases. We're still doing laparoscopic cases, but 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 honestly, and these it applies to all, all uh, cancer uh, cases we do. We limit we limit at, we limit as much as possible the number of people in the OR. So now we use we have uh, like uh, anesthesiologist, one nurse, and then and and then us. And for us, it's it's a, it's a smaller a keep than what we use now every day.
2: This is probably a stupid question, but um, is the virus present in peritoneal fluid? Do we know the numbers when you open an abdomen or do laparoscopy? Well, what is the was the viral load intra abdominally for the surgeons who are performing these procedures?
3: Yeah, I, I don't think that we we have that kind of information. What we know is there is evidence saying that uh, urine may contain virus indeed, uh, but uh, I don't have the information about the viral load in the abdomen.
0: Spaces. I suppose like we're we're trying to make sure those sorts of patients are not coming into the operating room in yeah. the first place, but you know by screening them and so on. But it is worrying to read that patients who've been screened and seem asymptomatic or they've got strange symptoms. I, I, I heard this morning that just losing your sense of smell and so on mm-hmm. can be wow. an early sign. You mightn't have a fever or a cough, you know, yes. but so there's a report this morning. Uh, uh, in the UK saying a whole load of patients uh, have a loss of sensation as a, uh, and then they turn out to be carrying the virus. So I suppose, Alberto, a question is, we're seeing this now, that our anaesthetic department and perioperative department are getting ready for higher risk environment where perhaps patients will come through and they're very, very, very concerned about aerosolisation and so on. They're taking huge precautions. We're all concerned about PPE and availability of PPE. Can I ask you what steps are happening in the hospital just to, to minimize the risks to, to staff, I suppose? Uh, you're screening the patients, I presume, with a phone call the day before yeah. and so on. But but in the OR, are people doing extra PPE, even on patients who are deemed to probably not have the virus?
3: No, I mean, that's an excellent question, because at some point in time, since this kind of, anyway, form of elective surgery, we need to, of course, make ourselves as safe as possible, and also patients and people working in the OR. So what we are doing, our protocol, is that um, each single patient th- th- is in charge one day or two days before surgery, and that we have the time to do the swab for the, 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 the search of the coronavirus, and then all patients need to have a negative test, and now we're also using uh, chest X-ray, as the two things that we require to our patients to be negative, and of course they need to be asymptomatic. Yeah. Then the, the, some of the guidelines also suggest to use CT scan, but uh, we don't use CT scan of the chest. Uh, chest x-ray, at least, as, as long as we know, is enough. So we do a search for a COVID and, and chest x-ray before surgery, and of course patient asymptomatic, and then we schedule the patient to surgery, we minimize the people dealing with patients. And of course, then comes to a real important question about the protective uh, things that you need to have to when you deal with any patients with by definition now need to be considered COVID positive. So any patients yeah. we deal with should be considered by definition COVID positive, even though asymptomatic. Mm. And please remember that we don't screen asymptomatic patients unless they go to the OR, but otherwise in Italy, uh, there is no like use of, uh, of, 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 of large screening tests for COVID. And uh, honestly, it's crazy, but many of us as physicians, we are not even tested if you are asymptomatic. Okay. Yeah. So basically, we use for the OR, we use the um, and w- the surgical mask, but we use also the other mask, which I think is named FP2 or something. So uh, we, we use two masks. Uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and we don't use, of course, gloves, but that is pre- standard practice. So we don't use other than two masks and gloves. Nothing really different as compared to what we we used to do before, except for again limiting the number of staff people in the OR. And generally speaking, we are also limiting the number of staff present in the department. Yeah. So our rule, uh, if I have time, I can explain. I mean, it's uh, just let me yes, know. Yes, please if, uh, go ahead. Sure. Okay. So uh, we are like a big department, but we decide to limit the number of physicians in the urological department based on like three people, those who are on call, uh, which are usually three, and then we have two staff members doing the grand rounds, and then we are those who are doing the operation. So instead of of being, and then we try to minimize the use of residents. So residents are pretty much asked to stay home, except in case of, whether they are on call and they need to help, but pretty much we are using, we are resident free at the moment, and so we are like pretty much average five staff in the department while usually we are 23. This is is the reduction that that we are doing.
2: Interesting. I like the, uh, the interesting thought about chest X-rays immediately or preoperatively, um, Declan. I don't know whether we've brought this in yet to Peter Mack, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, Alberto, but I'm hearing cases where people present, say, for something unrelated like a shoulder injury and an asymptomatic person can then on an X-ray be seen to have opacities within the lung and they've clearly got a well-established Respiratory infection, um, even visible radiologically with no symptoms.
1: That's right, and even a, a, the the swab has a, a rate of false negatives. So they they do say a chest X ray is a lot more yeah, sensitive. Yeah, or a CT,
2: and we're reading yeah.
0: that patients who present with abdominal pain, even sort of urological sounding abdominal pain, stone disease, on their on their CT of the abdomen, CTKUB, uh, you're seeing the the COVID in the in the base of the lungs, and um, wow. so I think that that's alarming, isn't it? The idea that yeah. despite all the measures. Uh, of screening and taking temperatures and asking questions that, uh, that there will be COVID knocking around the place and therefore uh, if that patient is going to the OR or even onto the ward and being looked after, uh, uh, that, that's where people may get exposed. Um.
1: And this concept of this the asymptomatic viral shedders and and them going through the stress of surgery, in fact, can, can increase that rate of shedding the virus.
2: And, and Alberto, if a health worker returns a positive COVID test, How long do you think uh, is the safe time for them to be away from work before their viral shedding is enough, they can come back safely? And, I mean, traditionally it's 14 days, but I think we know the virus can shed longer than that, correct?
3: Absolutely. That's an excellent question because we did indeed had uh, colleagues in the department who got infected. And, again, they got uh, infected and were turned out to be positive based on symptoms. And, And our protocol is the following. If there is any symptoms of COVID infection, they got the swab done and if it's positive, like we had some of the colleagues, they stay home for 14 days and then they come again to the hospital with another check swab to control and to check whether it's negative now. But I tell you that uh, among like we say five of them or six of them infected, three of them were still positive after two weeks. So, uh, like weekly positive. And now the guidelines, which is there are guidelines, is consider the weekly positive like a true real positive. So we check them again after a week. That's a compromise.
2: Yeah. this is so na- nasopharyngeal week. swabs?
3: Yeah. Yep. Yep. So it's two weeks at home, and then another mm-hmm. swab, and then if still positive, another week, another mm-hmm. swab, and then it's negative the day after they can, they can get back to work.
1: So it's useful information.
0: We've just had our yeah. first staff positive yesterday. Yeah, and so sure. I, in the cancer centre at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, we're a, um, hopefully a designated COVID clean site, um, Alberto. Um, we don't have an emergency department and we're trying to uh, be COVID free, but we are physically adjoined to a very large general hospital, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is certainly anticipated to be a busy COVID site in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, and so we are, as a cancer centre, trying to maintain levels of activity and um, we are prioritising within all the cancer uh, streams which cases we should and shouldn't be doing. But within the urological community, there's a lot of discussion and some, some have the view we should stop everything already now. Um, But that's sometimes coming from the perspective of hospitals that will be COVID positive and emergency departments and so on. Um, uh, But we are within our group trying to uh, prioritize what we do. Uh, You know, we don't want to end up in, I don't know, it could be six months or something with, you know, hundreds of of patients uh, to operate on. And I'm I'm encouraged by a few of the things you said. I'm encouraged by the idea we shouldn't just go straight to ADT. I, I think this is right. Um, you and others have published that uh, delay to prostatectomy, from diagnosis to prostatectomy, even for high-risk disease, is not a problem, uh, you know, provided you do it, usually within about 12 months or so, um, yeah. uh, even for high-risk disease. And Alberta published that so beyond 12 months can be a problem, okay? But even with high-risk disease, you know, and so this is important. Uh, we, we haven't cancelled... Well, actually, we have deferred a few patients in the next week or two, but I think we need to prepare... Um, our patients for these conversations. Everybody's anxious out there. Everybody understands there's a lot of headlines about cancellation of surgery, all types of surgery. But I think uh, we need to communicate carefully to our patients so we can offer them some reassurances. And, and as we sit here today talking about localized prostate cancer, but significant prostate cancer, because they're the only ones we operate on, uh, we, we do have to, to offer some reassuring messages that it's okay to wait. Uh, is that reasonable?
3: Absolutely, completely with you. Because patient reassurance is absolutely key—a key, a key uh, way to manage these patients because they're so scared uh, that they just want to have, like uh, a conversation with the doctors. I'm sure about the fact that uh, it's possible to wait without significant like risks. Yeah.
1: It's difficult, isn't it? Because when you're counselling these patients, you you sort of can't give them a time frame. You can't say, "Oh, we'll do your surgery in three months or four months." It's sort of an indefinite postponing. So, with these patients, um, what is, is there any kind of follow up that you do, Alberto? Do you do you follow up their PSA while they're waiting? Do you um, is there anything you do uh, to yeah. sort of tell you whether the cancer is progressing?
3: Uh, no, actually, no. Uh, it, I, I also have to admit that uh, our very first case in Italy was in February 21st, which uh, seems age ago, because we are at home, we are not allowed to go outside of our apartment, except on going to work, but we are still in the range of, of one month and a half or something. So uh, this was a disaster and was a real uh, hurricane for all of us, uh, but started kind of quite recently if you consider that it uh, was a month uh, a, month, uh, a month and a half ago. The problem is that we really do not know whether, and that's a good point, when we will go back and operating on these patients. So the question mark is when can we go back to a normal scheduled uh, surgical activity? And our administrator says, listen, this is not going to happen soon. Yeah. So take care of your patient. April, for sure, we are not going to do anything more than more than what we are doing. So we, we, the problem is really, really, that we not cannot foresee what is going on in the next weeks. That's yeah. because uh, you have seen in China that there is also the risk of a second wave of infection. Especially if you don't, or people do not, do not self-quarantine themselves that well, and Italians in that sense try to you know not to follow the rules, but not all of them. Okay, but we do have some people really again along the streets yeah. without any reason.
1: Yeah,
3: and and this is bad. And and really, people needs to need to understand that uh, uh, you need to stay home, and there is psychological consequences. We all know. Uh, and also, like lifestyle, social, uh, from a social perspective, but still, we really
1: need to it's stay hard to home adapt, and, isn't uh, it? Yeah. Uh, yeah,
2: Alberto. One other question about um, stratifying the risk for s- different cancers. What about small renal masses, partial nephrectomies? Where do you draw the line about who is observed? Are you biopsying more, um, observing more small renal masses as opposed to doing the partial nephrectomies?
3: Well this is an excellent point because uh, if possible I would like to share something with you which happened to me or to us and uh, we had to take care of uh, a young lady that received a, bi- a percutaneous renal mass biopsy for something which could be delayed to any time without any significant risk. That was done, she was on anticoagulative therapy, she was a young lady, and they say that she was because eventually she died. She died of hemorrhage okay. after a pituitary renal biopsy, two attempts of embolization, two surgical interventions. But there was nothing to do. Multi-organ failure. And this is an horrible story. Gosh, that's,
1: that's terrible. Tragedy, isn't it?
3: This horrible story should tell us that, uh, of course, in our prioritization list, which is, by the way, I haven't mentioned this before, but it's reviewed by like a committee, which is above us, which is looking at the prioritization of all surgical specialties. We don't include small renal masses in these lists. We include local advanced kidney cancer cases, uh, muscle um, uh, invaded bladder cancer, and high risk disease when it uh, it's, it comes to prostate cancer. So we are not dealing now with small renal masses. We are not doing biopsies. if possible we can avoid it as much as possible we want to decrease the risk of having people requiring for eventual icu while there is no bed available this is the main point
2: when you say high risk disease alberto by the way for prostate cancer are you including say gleason grade group three cancer do you extend the high risk in that broader sense to include aggressive cancers particularly in young men it- so
3: I tell you that in the list that we have that are scheduled for surgery over the next weeks, we always have Gleason nine. We only have Gleason nine. Right. So in the next in the list which we have we have uh, quite a bunch of Gleason nine waiting to be operated. But I would be tempted to say just focus on, on Gleason eight to ten. That would be my 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 definition of people requiring prioritization. Of course, there are locally advanced but many of these patients are locally advanced anyway. uh, Then we have a couple of oligomet patients, uh, but still these are those patients we are focusing on in terms of prostate cancer.
1: And certainly our USANS guidelines uh, recommend um, kind of limiting it to Gleason 8 to 10 as well.
0: Terrific. Well, we really Alberto, forever, um, we, we could talk <laughs> forever, but yes. we it's, it's late evening in Milan. Um, it's been very uh, good of you to uh, give us your time and your uh, expertise. Gosh, there's really quite a bit to think about as we face into this period. And um, hopefully we won't see the same uh, terrible, uh, disastrous situation with so many infections and so many deaths. We are learning from your terrible experience. And we're very grateful to you for sharing your prostate cancer wisdom, and, uh, and I hope yourself and your family remain well. And we should say, of course, uh, Alberto was supposed to be here um, right. uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He was, yeah. he was, uh, he, we were so looking forward to him coming to speak at the uh, USAN's annual meeting. Uh, himself and, um, and his, uh, his uh, eminent uh, Milanese colleague, Professor Montorzi, were due to come down here. So uh, that invitation, I'm sure, will be wide open, Alberto, and we look forward to welcoming you back uh, in the future.
3: Thank you, and just let, just let let me thank you all of you guys to allow me to give our um, experience with regards to COVID management for urological patients. And of course, I need to finish uh, this uh, this uh, nice chat by thanking all the people that are dealing with these patients. Because seriously, there is there is no night, there is no day, there is nothing that uh, that, that that and, and people are seeing. I am seeing people. Sleeping in the corridors of the department just to help these people, and I think this a wonderful, a wonderful way of 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 demonstration of how much we can do for for these uh, poor patients, and these poor patients could be ourselves. So, so, so this is very important to thank all these people.
2: Yeah, thank,
1: thank you, definitely. Alberto. Thank Take
0: you care from us too. Take care. Wow, Alberto Briganti joining us uh, from Milan. Uh, I'm sort of speechless after that. Yeah, oh,
1: it was amazing, That's wasn't it? Sobering, very sobering. That.
2: Unbelievable. Wow,
0: Well, but it does help because we're about to face into this and we're looking at all sorts of guidelines for everywhere. And I think his reassuring messages about not rushing into ADT, telling patients it's okay to wait and so on is all uh, very The level of screening
1: things. that they yeah, do for pre-op patients. And yeah. Hopefully we never come to that situation, but it's nice to... So,
2: so many lessons to learn, yeah.
1: I think. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, tha- that's it for uh, this episode of GU Cast, uh, focusing on early prostate cancer. We will be back again very soon within a few days, hopefully, to do bring you another episode and we'll probably focus on kidney cancers or more advanced cancers uh, in yeah. our next episode from all of us here at GUcast, myself, Renu and Dan. See you uh, next time. See you next time.